watchers in the fourth dimension. Good evening, everyone, to a special Halloween horror episode of Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm your host, Riley. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. And I'm Julie. Close your eyes. Imagine the marquee of a classic cinema and see that tonight our double bill is the 1970 Hammer horror film, The Scars of Dracula, and the 1966 entry into the Carry On film series, Carry On Screaming! Exclamation mark. Yes, there is an exclamation mark at the end of that title. Before we dive in, the amazing opening music you just heard was What If John Carpenter Did a Doctor Who Theme from George C. Music, a music account on YouTube and SoundCloud that produces variations of the Doctor Who theme in the style of a variety of artists. Please go check them out. This is our second year having a Halloween special, so let me quickly review our format and premise. We plan to discuss two horror films that involve a Doctor Who actor. Naturally, we will focus on actors who portray the Doctor, and we will try to only cover the Doctors whose era we have reached in our journey through the series. We'll cover each film one by one with me asking questions to the Watcher's crew. For this episode, we are happy to revisit one of our personal favorites, Patrick Troughton, even if it means seeing him dismember a dead body. And... (laughs) (laughs) We may have just wrapped our time with John Pertwee, but that doesn't mean we don't get to enjoy him putting on a very strong Scottish accent. So let's get to the double feature. Scars of Dracula was the sixth installment in Hammer Films' Dracula series. Calling these films a series is a bit of a reach considering that the continuity of the narrative wasn't set in stone. It was more of a, can we get Christopher Lee to return for the role, or we need more money, let's make another Dracula film situation. For those unfamiliar, Hammer Films is a famous British film production company that reinvigorated the horror genre since its last heyday with the Universal Monster Films. They did venture outside of the classic horror genre. Hammer is familiar to us on the podcast because they produced the Quatermass films, which were so influential on Doctor Who. As with most good things, Hammer hit a decline in quality and success, eventually leading to what would effectively be a hibernation for many years. But just like any good monster, they have seemed to have risen from the dead and have recently been producing films. So let's talk about what may be considered the start of Hammer's decline, The Scars of Dracula. (laughs) Let's focus on this setting and look at this film. Hammer Films earned a reputation for providing excellent atmosphere for their films. What did you think of the sets and the look of it? Did it provide that sexy, gothy vibe? Absolutely. It was so gothy that it even seemed to take place in what I assume was Bavaria. (laughs) You don't get much more goth than that. I was a little confused on maybe the time frame and everything. Yes. Because of some of the special effects. It really felt like the castle and that other little village were from one time period and that the birthday party that was happening seemed to be completely separated. However, I did like the differentiation because you take them out of there and put them in the gothy era and they're like, oh, what is going on? But I was actually thinking that a hundred years had passed, but no, not a hundred years had passed. It just happened to be further away in a city. It's not really clear. Like Mm -hmm. the thing starts like three times (laughs) and it's never quite clear 
how much time has passed between that initial moment where, and this happens early on, which is weird, where I'm just going to call them peasants. I'm sorry, there's probably a more politically correct way to put that. (laughs) When they storm the castle, burn it down, and do all that stuff that you normally would do at the end of a Dracula movie. Yes. You don't really get an idea about how long it's been between then and when our hammer sex comedy starts that then (laughs) once again changes its mind and going back to be a Dracula movie. (laughs) However, I like the sets themselves. I really liked the exterior of the castle and the use of fog machines. We all love the fog machine, right? We love the fog machines. And then inside the castle, we get our lovely four poster bed with the drapes. And I love all of that. So I think from a set perspective, they did great from actually providing a setting that made sense. It was a little iffy. It is kind of a greatest hits of other Mm. Hammer Dracula movies. As Riley said, it doesn't fit the continuity. And structurally, it's a little weird because you get the impression it's been like 10 minutes since they burnt the place down. (laughs) Especially when Dracula says, oh, before it was burnt down, we were always welcome to guests. I mean, that was like five minutes ago. (laughs) No one in the village has aged. Come on. The lack of continuity, the questionable settings from one place to another where they seem to be in different eras. Combine that as a child, these films would show on television as an afternoon movie, all of these Dracula films. And it was so bizarre for a young kid like me watching them to get a grasp of why you're seeing a bunch of very, very English-looking people from the 60s and 70s sounding very English from that time period, wearing 1800s clothing (laughs) from Germany and calling people Burgermeister. It was very, very confusing. (laughs) Yes, I agree completely. It definitely has that, but that's part of its charm, I think. (laughs) Now, was this anyone's first Hammer Horror film or at least their first Hammer Dracula film? I think so there is a possibility that me being a five-year-old didn't know if it was a hammer film or not i didn't watch a ton of dracula films or a ton of horror films that fit that kind of genre i I mainly stuck with like friday the 13th and halloweens so I, i think it was my first one i know i had seen the original hammer dracula and then its first two sequels the brides of dracula and dracula prince of darkness before but i had not seen this one oh okay i have seen quite a few of them I had not seen this one. I know I've never watched them in order, which is kind of spurious <laughs> to say like Dracula 1972 AD is an interesting oh. watch to say the least. But I almost wish that for this and especially being Julie's first one, we could have watched the original, which also has Peter Cushing. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. But this one has Patrick Troughton. So there's that. Right. And what's shocking about that first one, the 1958 Dracula is At least the versions, maybe it's been cleaned up, but it looks so much better than Scars of Dracula. It looks so much cleaner and crisper. Maybe it's because they put some remastering into it. I was going to say, I know they definitely did. I got the Blu-ray release of it a couple of years ago and it looks gorgeous. It really is a beautiful film. That's considered to be one of the classic Dracula movies, so it wouldn't surprise me if they did put effort into that, but maybe not one like this that candidly is nowhere near as good. (laughs) It's fair. I mean, that's a good segue into we're talking about the 1958 Dracula, we're talking about the Dracula series, let's talk about the man that made the series, Christopher Lee. Absolute legend, not just for this, but for any sort of large, large franchise in science fiction or fantasy, Christopher Lee is there. His portrayal of Dracula is considered to be 
as good, almost as good, better than Bela Lugosi's? What do you think of his performance in this, which may be quite limiting? And what do you think of him as Dracula in general, just playing that part, the potential, or if you had seen him before as well? I'm one of the ones who would definitely say that he is the ultimate Dracula for me. I think he is better than Bela Lugosi. I think he has such an amazing presence. And I would go as far as to say that he was the best thing about this film. (laughs) By a country mile. (laughs) On behalf of the rubber bats, I am insulted. (laughs) I haven't watched a ton. Again, as I mentioned, I actually don't know that I've seen Bela Lugosi as Dracula. I know everyone hate me, but I'm just not a horror person. They've dragged me into this. Blame them. One thing that happened that I thought was really funny, I happened to be looking down at, I think my notes, I was jotting some stuff down about the music and I heard someone speak and I was like, that's Christopher Lee. Didn't even see him. I was just, (laughs) that's his voice. The thing that I liked, and I don't know if they do it in the other ones, so this is just something that I noticed. What I liked is that they played up the whole hypnotizing people by just looking at them and them being mesmerized by him. And it really works because of just somehow he's menacing and charming at the same time. It's a really weird, bizarre thing that he's able to pull off. But I like that they leaned into that because Chris Lee can make that work. And I know that that is actually part of Dracula lore, so I'm not as annoyed by it as I am in Doctor Who when I'm just like, oh, mind control again. This is actually <laughs> something that is supposed uh. to be a thing. So I loved it. He definitely has a look. He's the tall, menacing, has a charm. I love him. He's charming, but he does bring an actual element of horror mm-hmm. to the role, which is really nice. And I'm a big fan of Bela Lugosi as Dracula, but he's the best thing about that particular film in that it's really stagey. And even the Spanish version is probably technically a better movie, but Bella's charm brings it out. Christopher Lee is a different type of charm Mm -hmm. and he's super impressive. In the other Dracula movies, except for the first one, he hardly ever speaks, Mm -hmm. which to me is kind of a shame because Christopher Lee has that voice. Mm -hmm. So yeah, he might be the ultimate Dracula. I think I might actually have to agree with Andy on that. I believe there was, I can't remember which film in the series, but one of the conditions for Christopher Lee to come back was to actually get lines. (laughs) Which, like you said, is an absolute shame because, and we've seen him deliver wonderful performances, speaking performances in just about everything within sci-fi or fantasy. And he's done such a great job with it. And I can understand them going silent with him in perhaps one Dracula film because his presence is so strong and so good and just carries. But you're, you're missing such great potential. Yeah, I think in the second one, he didn't have any lines. And according to him, it's because he didn't want to speak the direct they had written for him. But if you listen to the writer, he says, well, I never wrote anything for him anyway. So there's a little bone of contention there. That was Dracula, Prince of Darkness, and the exact quote, and I'm not going to attempt his voice, but (laughs) I didn't speak in that picture. The reason was very simple. I read the script and saw the dialogue. I said to Hammer, if you think I'm going to say any of these lines, you're very much mistaken. (laughs) (laughs) And who do we believe, the World War hero or the other one? Right, right. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to get back just a second. Julie, you mentioned making notes about the music. (laughs) Do you have any specific comments you'd like to make about the score? So first off, I did a quick little rundown of just how this played out. So we first get light, eerie music. Then we get dark, ominous music. Then tense music. Then light, pleasant music. Then determined music. Then ominous music. Then dark music. (laughs) Then jaunty music. We all know that. 
that was when we finally get to the birthday party. And then we get music intensifying at 2844 minutes. Yes, I tracked what <laughs> minute markers these were. And we get majestically music. Majestically what? I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> this is all from the subtitles, correct? Yes. Okay. Dark, curious music and soft romantic music. And to be fair, it really does hit on a lot of these marks. It's very fitting for what it is. It's kind of like how I wish Dudley Simpson had done some episodes of Doctor Who. It's a lot of low woodwinds, a lot of low reeds. I love it. You do get that kind of eerie feeling a lot of the times. I don't think it's spectacular. It doesn't do anything different than other things that I've seen in some other horror films, but it definitely fits the mood. It definitely sets the mood. And I did enjoy it. Excellent. Let's get to the meat and potatoes. <laughs> Patrick Troughton. Oh. Troughton is tasked with the Renfield type character of Clove. I will ask the same question that I asked when we reviewed The Omen. What do you think of him in color? And what do you think of his performance? Well, we last saw him in color on the podcast when we did The Three Doctors. That's true. That is true. So this is our third time seeing him in color. I gotta say though, those eyebrows. <laughs> Damn. Can we add one to the Anton, actually two to the Antony pedantry count? <laughs> I think one for all well, the exact quote was, and then <laughs> I like it. We're going to keep it. All right. <laughs> I guess, Anthony, we're going to just talk over you. Uh <laughs> yep. Cool. So I know my place. I love seeing him as something completely different from the doctor. It was very unsettling to see him as a very, very rundown character. He had filthy hair, bad teeth, and then the marks on his back that we end up seeing. And I think he does a pretty good job of juggling some of that like crazy and, and love and everything with him and Sarah. I rather enjoyed it. It could have been a character that could have been played off as like completely terrible and awful and only does what his master does mm -hmm. but i like that it gave that one little nuance and it was only the one thing he liked sarah did not like what paul was paul's name i think it was paul paul yeah did not like him he's like i will save sarah but i will not save you paul and i thought that was really well done <laughs> i think the dracula films are full of people named paul <laughs> <laughs> There's at least one other clove, too, so they tend to like to reuse the names. They do like to do that. But he's really good. Mm -hmm. I think it's a type of performance where you watch it and you don't think, hey, this guy could beat the doctor or was the doctor. It's this guy really needs a shower and he's creepy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's what they were going for. Yes. And it completely <laughs> works. Yeah. Where I was going before you all decided to call me out on pedantry <laughs> was seeing him in color just isn't that much of a shock anymore. And it was interesting because that first shot you see of him is of his eyes mm -hmm. in the little viewer in the door. And his eyes are so immediately recognizable. Mm -hmm. That's true. And as Don and Julie said, he looks great. I mean, he looks terrible, but in a great way. <laughs> we know what you mean. Yeah. He looks run down. He looks the part. And candidly, he did a great job with the material that he was given. And I really think he's one of those actors who is able to elevate bad material much in the same way as someone like Peter Capaldi can do. Mm -hmm. Completely agree. I think in the hands of a lesser actor, this would have been absolutely disastrous. Speaking of disasters... And I don't mean to take this away from you, Riley, but when I was watching this early on, I got to a point where I was wondering how Julie would react to it mm -hmm. because we have our nice entry. It's atmospheric. The music is going. And then a gigantic bat comes in <laughs> and barfs blood on Dracula's ashes. <laughs> 
and I thought, oh, I didn't know that was going to be here. I wonder what kind of comments we're going to get. <laughs> yes, let's be frank. The special effects aren't wonderful. I mean, it doesn't gross me out because I'm like, it's a rubber bat. It is obviously a rubber bat. It's just not the bat. most dignified way of being resurrected. <laughs> fair. That is fair. Part of the issues I feel is that the Hammer Films always wanted to retain a sense of sexiness. And that sexiness is always built around the Dracula attacking, about to bite the neck of the low neckline dressed woman. And it seemed pretty clear with this one. I mean, look at the title. It's Scars of Dracula. They wanted to go in a more intense kind of gorier sense, but they didn't want mm -hmm. that to interfere with the sex appeal. You mean the blonde with bosoms? Because that's yes, all this was, exactly. was blonde with bosoms. Yes, exactly. And so they needed to find another way to introduce the gore. And so that's why you have flying rubber bats that vomit blood. <laughs> One thing I actually did like, and not every time a bat attacks, because obviously, you know, they're coughing up blood and all this other stuff, and it looks really silly. But I think they did a fairly decent job of when all the women get killed, because let's be mm -hmm. honest, all the women get killed. Oh, at the church of fuck around and find out? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. I actually think they did a fairly decent job of showing that. It's not the worst that I've seen. It's not the best that I've seen, but I think that it made the point. And man, a lot of crazy things happened there. Now, when it attacked the priest, I was like, eh, yeah, he shouldn't have died from that, but okay. And I would like to confirm the priest was not played by Michael Palin, despite <laughs> <laughs> similarities in appearance. Oh, boy. While we're talking about the bats, how they shot the church scene, let's talk about the director, Roy Ward Baker. He has had a very long career that included such hammer classics as The Vampire Lovers and Quatermass in the Pit. He also directed a few episodes of The Avengers, sadly did not direct any episodes of Zed Cars. How would you rate his directing in this go? Well, before we get into his directing on this, I have to say, if he never did Zed Cars, he ain't worth shit. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Um, I kind of put him in the middle of the road, mm -hmm. going towards a little bit bad. There's the vomiting bats. There was this one very specific shot that I noticed where you obviously saw a stunt double driving the carriage and it wasn't Paul. But again, there are some atmospheric things that are happening, especially at the castle itself. Yes. When they're on the ropes going down into Dracula's bedroom. We'll call it a bedroom. So I think there's some good things. There's a lot of bad things. So I just put him in the middle of the road. I struggled with it because I've seen Quatermass in the pit, both the movie version and the original TV version, which had nothing to do with him. But that movie version of Quatermass in the pit is fantastic. Mm. So I know he is capable of so much better than this. And I don't know how much was forced on him by the script and by the Hammer production company, but some of the inconsistencies, I feel like he could have ironed out. We mentioned at the beginning that we weren't quite sure in the time frame in which this was set, and there seems to be this mishmash and mixed clothing and so on. And I put that on the director. Hmm. That's fair. And mm. again, I just feel that I know he can do much, much better than this. For me, this was very, very disappointing. I think it could have happened in editing, but you would think he would have some say over that. But yeah, the little things like, well, how long between they burned the castle down and the events of the movie? How long did it take for that to start? 
could that have been done in some sort of flashback scene rather than taking up the like first 10 minutes? I don't know. It does seem like he was limited by his budget, but it's not the best directed one I've ever seen. When you think about the budget, I think what really comes through clearly, and I'll have to rewatch the earlier Hammer Dracula films to remember this, but I feel like his shots in studio were good. It's when he had to do outdoor shots where things looked a bit rough. His blocking was good, but what really stands out is the fact that it was very clear that they were doing the old, old film trick of, it's nighttime outside, but actually we're shooting during the day and we're using a filter or dimming things down a little bit to try to make it look like it's nighttime. And that just comes across so much as a contrast when you will have people walking up to the castle and it's pretty clearly filming in the shade during daytime. And then when they're at the castle, it is pitch black night. And I think that is just a budget issue, really, because they couldn't really give him the lights to really do outdoor shooting at night. You say things like that, and then you've got Game of Thrones as an example of how not to shoot at night. You have an example of Lord of the Rings, which how to shoot at night. You have examples of modern television where, oh, hey, I'm getting coffee first thing in the morning, but I have to go to work at 8 a.m. And yet somehow it's broad daylight. So it's something that's done even in modern television and modern TV. Mm -hmm. So I don't like to use that as my example, just because I can sit there and point out like uh, Gilmore Girls. Uh, Yeah, it's not going to be as bright as noon when she's getting coffee at 6 a.m. But yes, thank you. I'm not sure how we mentioned Gilmore Girls. I know. I was about to say, I never expected to hear Gilmore Girls mentioned in a horror film. You're welcome, episode, everyone. But here it is. That's why I'm here. First time it's ever been done. Yes, we are breaking ground here. Well, this film broke the continuity of previous Hammer Dracula films because it was set up as a potential reboot because they didn't know if Christopher Lee was going to come back and it was a difficult time getting him to agree to play the role. Considering that, from here on out, as Don mentioned earlier, the Dracula films shift to a more contemporary time and one of them even includes Kung Fu. (laughs) Do you think Christopher Lee should have cut out before making this film? Should he have stayed and done this film, then moved out? Or should he have done what he did and at least go on to do Dracula 80, 1972? I'm just going to go ahead and say that I have no skin in the game because I've seen no other Hammer films. So I feel like that's unfair for me to comment on. Fair enough. I'm going to say he should have bowed out before this. Have that resurrection at the beginning as an opportunity to cast someone else in the role and he can get away from a franchise that is having diminishing returns. I find this difficult because to me, any Christopher Lee Dracula is good Dracula. But I think if they'd had the courage to actually reboot it instead of giving kind of a mishmash (laughs) that doesn't follow previous continuity yet doesn't feel like a reboot just kind of pick one and go with it and go with it hard i mean i think they could have really increased the quality of the franchise if they found someone that could write dialogue that he liked (laughs) but eh, there it is i'm kind of on both sides i can understand wanting him to go out while there was still a high and hammer with their productions but i'm also with don where i will get as much christopher lee as directly as i can take 
just keep giving it to me. I want as much as possible. So how do we rate this? Is this something that is worth a viewing? Forget about it. Don't even bother. And for people that are wanting to see the doctor, want to see Patrick Troughton, is this something that you would recommend them to watch to see his performance or is the juice not worth the squeeze? If you want to see Troughton in a horror movie, watch The Omen before you watch this. <laughs> the only reasons to watch this, and I thought as Hammer vampire movies go, this one was honestly pretty poor. So either you're an obsessive Hammer fan who wants to see and own everything, or you're an obsessive Troughton fan who wants to watch everything he's ever been in. If you're just a casual viewer, I do not recommend this movie. Harsh but fair. I don't think it's awful, but I do think it's fairly mediocre. It has some fun moments. It has some weird tonal issues. I mean, I think I mentioned it earlier, but when we start off with the brother that, spoiler, eventually winds up dead, it's a sex comedy. He's literally leaving so from bad. the bedroom of one woman to go and flirt <laughs> with his brother's girlfriend. Oh, he's a relentless shagger. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's uh, Julie's namesake. Him. Yeah. Regardless of that, it's very much a weird tone. And then you get to the weird castle and all that stuff. It's a lot more brutal. Like the way they've written Dracula in this, I want to use the word bloodthirsty, but that's not what I mean. He's much more cruel. Mm -hmm. Like the things he does to Clove and the way he kills his first vampire bride. It's very cruel. Because mm -hmm. I think they were going for, oh, a darker tone there, but then a sillier tone over here. And it never quite gels. And just while we're on Dracula and his brides, I've got to say, Anushka Hempel as Tanya, he throws away the goth chick for the blonde. What's wrong with him? <laughs> True. Oh, all right. Julie? <laughs> Deep, heavy sigh, waiting for her to talk about Betten again. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? One thing, I actually did rate it because that was a question that you asked. So I give it 4.5 blonde bosoms out of 10. Yes. I'd give it five barfing bats out of 10. <laughs> and I'm four mono brows out of 10. Mm -hmm. yeah. I would be around a four Michael Palin impersonators out of 10. <laughs> and my feeling is that with this one, if you really want to see Trouton, I understand it. But if you want to really appreciate what these films can be and what they accomplish, seriously watch the ones prior to this and get an understanding how good it is. And if you really enjoyed it, then bring yourself to this and it will be kind of like a favorite meal that was poorly prepared, but at least it gives you memories of how it used to taste. I think it might be fun to riff, though. I know during the beginning, when the guy brings, I guess it's his daughter's body in and toss her up on the bar. I'm just like, for the last time, Steve, you cannot pay your tab with corpses. You've got to stop this. <laughs> I also want to add that if I had been in the role of other Julie who was in there, I wouldn't have been the idiot who saw a carriage pull up. All of a sudden, the person driving the carriage isn't around and goes to like climb in. That was so <laughs> stupid. That was idiotic. Yeah. <laughs> that is a wrap on the Scars of Dracula. Now let's move on to our second feature, Carry On Screaming. Yes. <laughs> and now... Before the next show starts, let's enjoy an intermission. You'll find our snack bar chock full of good things to eat and drink. Tasty, tempting hot dogs, thirst-quenching soft drinks, fresh, crunchy popcorn, a complete assortment of delicious candy, and a full line of cigarettes. We shall keep you informed of the remaining intermission time, three minutes before the next show starts. Let's all go to the lobby. 
Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Keeping the theme of this evening, Carry On Screaming was the 12th in the series of 31, that's right, <laughs> 31 Carry On films. The British comedy franchise of Carry On began in 1958 and finished in 1978. They truly were the police academy of their time. Carry On Screaming was made as a parody of the Hammer films, just like the one we just spoke of. This film was filmed over the course of two months at Pinewood Studios for a budget of just a shade under 200,000 pounds. <laughs> but who could tell, right? <laughs> Anyways, let's carry on discussing the title music right at the front. It hits you. What do we think of it? All right, I got this. I love it. The main theme takes from the title sequence or vice versa. It always depends. Sometimes they come up with the melody for the theme and sometimes they come up with a song first and then take from it, whichever way. It's super catchy. I love how they sync the scream with the words shaking on the screen. I thought that was brilliant. Things I didn't like about it, the screaming. (laughs) They actually did that live. What? When they recorded the vocals and the music and the scream, they had the beginning of the film up on a projector and they had to do it at specific times. Oh my God, that's amazing. So they didn't cut it to it. Yeah, they did it live. Isn't that awesome? Oh, that's so good. I love it. Thank you. Anyone else? I liked it. I thought it was effective. It does that thing where it riffs Hammer, but also adds that carry on thing with the screaming. So I thought that was really, really effective. It also had like a 1950s horror at party beach kind of thing or they like have a jaunty theme Mm -hmm. for some kind of horror movie and i really enjoyed it and a little bit of trivia about that was i'm pretty sure that at one point it was thought that the jim dale who played albert potter was the singer but it wasn't it was actually a session singer for the embassy label named ray pilgrim but i thought that would have been really cool to have someone who was in the film to do a song that's very as don would say 1950s kind of horror film party beach kind of thing to do yeah. and that's a lot of fun so i know we all have varying degrees of familiarity with hammer horror films and this is meant to be a parody of those films do we feel like this film hit its target or did it miss its mark I can't say too much about specifically for Hammer Horror, but it is definitely a parody and I loved it. It's <laughs> definitely a product of its time. So there's a lot of, <clears throat> uh, how do I call it, misogynistic things that are happening in this oh, yes. entire film. But I'll forgive it because, again, it's a product of its time. And also, let's be honest, Kenneth Williams is a brilliant, brilliant man. And he kind of made the film for me, but I still really enjoyed it. In defense of the misogyny accusation, none of the men really come off looking any better. <laughs> it's That's fair. <laughs> it's like yeah. everyone is varying degrees. <laughs> of an idiot (laughs) yeah it's just idiocy all around and so many of the characters are just archetypes that you see in every single carry-on movie joan sims as mrs bung Mm -hmm. that kind of harridan you almost always see right the idiot husband 
you always see. So I wasn't surprised to see any of these here. I was expecting it, but I was very curious as to how Julie would react, particularly to how women are portrayed in this. It's one of those things where I grew up on watching a lot of comedies and I watched a lot of comedies that were not always in good taste. Again, products of their time. It's something that I'm pretty easily able to forgive. I will point it out and I'll say this thing happened, but then I'll say, eh, but I still liked it. (laughs) Yeah. Just to get back to Riley's original question, I think this was very, very effective as a parody of the Hammer Horror films. You get a little bit of Frankenstein, you get a little bit of Jekyll and Hyde in there. I'd say even with Kenneth Williams, the way he's made up, you almost get a little bit of Dracula, even though he's not deliberately a vampire. And you even get the mummy at the end. Mm -hmm. You do. Going back to the horrible, haranguing wife, her voice reminded me of an actress that was in a lot of the early 1930s universal horror films, especially those by James Whale. Her name was Una O'Connor. She was, I think, basically the landlady of the Invisible Man. And she showed up in a couple... She has this really high-pitched and distinctive voice, and that's what his wife reminded me of. (laughs) Getting back to what Anthony says about rolling things all together, even our monster in this series, if you look at it, it has the... (laughs) Flathead of of Frankenstein, the furriness of a werewolf, the fangs of a vampire. And we also have a concoction that can turn you into one of those, just like in Jekyll and Hyde. And then, of course, the mummy at the end. And then even beyond that, you look at some of the sets. All of that gorgeous wood paneling feels Mm. very, very hammer to me. Mm -hmm. It's very conscious in the way it apes it. And the music. The music is very hammer as well. And then the atmosphere at the very beginning when they're in the woods. Mm -hmm. Very, very atmospheric. Although Potter, buddy, just because you've been dating for a while doesn't mean that you're (laughs) going to get some. (laughs) (laughs) Just saying. No means Uh, no. Yes. Speaking of Potter, and before we get to Pertwee, let's talk about Jim Dale. He played the part of Albert Potter. He was in the running to play the fourth doctor. So what do we think? Can you picture him playing the doctor? Or a version of the Doctor? Not really. No. I can't picture him in the scarf, but sometimes you just can't really tell until you see them and their take on the role. I really enjoyed him in his role, but the type of role that he played, it's very difficult to see what kind of acting abilities they actually have because it is a one note character for pretty much the entire time. If I could see him in some other character in some other film, maybe I could say yes or no, he could do it. But in this particular role as he was, yeah, no, absolutely not. Fair enough. I had a difficult time seeing him in any other type of way role. other than, yes. yeah, than, than the character <laughs> that he played. Mm-hmm. And maybe yeah. that's testament to how good he played that role. But uh, it's hard to say. It's very hard to say. And that's exactly how I felt. Yeah. It's very, very difficult to see the doctor as kind of a cockney, cheeky chappy who's a bit of a horn dog. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things where if you take a look at Troughton, let's say you had never seen any of Troughton in Doctor Who, but you saw him in The Scars of Dracula, it might take a little bit to really think that maybe he could be the doctor, but you could definitely tell that was a good actor underneath all of that. Right. That he showed depth and he showed yes. range. Yes. This yes, character exactly. did not have range. Did Slowbottom, har har, did he look familiar to anybody? Yes. Of course he looked familiar to you, Andy. <laughs> anybody else? Which one's... Uh... Uh... Yes. Oh, slow, yeah, slow bottom. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. He was the monk. That's oh, in do- the meddling, the meddling monk. We have another connection. Oh, Justification. Oh, Woo. I feel so embarrassed. I had so many connections written and I was about to go into them about the connections between Doctor Who and this. And I did not 
for some reason, find Slowbottom as the monk. That is amazing. Thank you, Don. Thank you, You're Don. welcome. That's very cool. I mean, of course, Andy knows that because he knows all this stuff, which yes. is amazing. <laughs> and I... <laughs> I like how he let you have. Yes, well, yes I do. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> While we're on the topic, let's go ahead and cover what I discovered. Fenella Fielding, who played Valeria, has a Doctor Who connection. She was the narrator of the 1999 TV documentary of Doctor Who called Carnival of Monsters, which to me I find very funny now in the fact that I was able to discover that, but I couldn't recognize the monk. <laughs> <laughs> staring me in the face. Also, Joan Sims, who played Emily Bung, will be in Colin Baker's era of the Doctor, and that would be the episode The Mysterious Planet. And Angela Douglas, who played Doris Mann, will be showing up in the seventh Doctor story, Battlefield. And so I will ask everyone, they only had a little bit of time. Do you think that you would look forward to seeing these actors later on in the show? Joan Sims, if she does something that's not the obnoxious <laughs> wife, then... Which I'm not expecting. Yes. No. And... <laughs> It's hard to say about Angela Douglas because Doris wasn't in it for very long and mainly she just screamed and was scared. So mm-hmm. yeah. I hope that she's not just a scared woman in whatever Seventh Doctor story that is. But I'm always up for seeing people again. Valeria was absolutely wonderful amazing. and amazing. Yeah. And I loved her and she's gorgeous. I wish she wasn't just the narrator. Nah, yeah. I could see on her TV. I've already let slip my preference for gothy kind of girls. Yeah, so I, I saw that. And with Julie, I would have loved to have seen her. Angela Douglas in Battlefield also plays a character called Doris. Oh, <laughs> well, there you go. And a little bit of a spoiler for you, but she is Mrs. Lethbridge-Stewart. What? Wow. There's a Mrs.? Wait, wait, we need this here. Make sure to add this in. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, by 1989, there is a Mrs. Lethbridge-Stewart. I don't know how I feel about that. (laughs) And Joan Sims, she's excellent in The Mysterious Planet. So looking forward to seeing her come back. Fantastic. Well, so about the man who brought us here, John Pertwee. He plays Dr. Fettle. I know we all appreciate when Pertwee plays a broad comic character, and that's what we get in this one. What do we think of it? Did we miss the opportunity of having the third doctor to disguise himself as a Scottish scientist? Yes. Yeah. Did anyone else besides Antony notice they dropped a Doctor Who reference into the script? Oh, yeah. I did notice that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was so obvious. I'm like, yep, that's Doctor Who. Yeah. Wonderful. I did struggle with Pertwee's accent. At times it sounded Scottish, <laughs> at times it sounded Irish, and my notes actually say, Scottish? Irish? Who the fuck knows? <laughs> and I do love that we get plenty of Pertwee Gurns, but his role is quite small. Yes, that's unfortunate. I would have enjoyed that character being around a bit more. But he packed as many Gurns in as you <laughs> oh, possibly <yes>. could. <laughs> I think they contracted him to like a four Gurn minimum. <laughs> Well, I was going to ask about how important atmosphere was in Hammer Horror Films and whether this film did a good job of recreating that, but we kind of already discussed that in regards to how well this film hit its mark of parodying Hammer Horror Films. So I'm just going to leave this open. If anyone has anything that they want to raise about what they experienced from this film, please go ahead. I liked it. It's a very old-fashioned, dad-jokey <laughs> kind of movie, but it was nice just to have something you could watch. You could laugh at kind of how rubbish the monsters were. Oddbod and Oddbod Jr. <laughs> with their enormous heads and their out-of-control body hair problem. Who are both obsessed with Valeria. I don't blame them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> really, yeah. Kenneth Williams is also very good at just stealing 
any scene that he's in. Absolutely. Choose the scenery. Yeah. And it's hilarious. So good. It was so funny because I know I've seen Kenneth Williams in something. And yet I looked through all of his IMDb. I'm like, I don't know where I've seen this man. It's probably been on some game show because he did a couple of game shows in his day. So I was sitting there. I was like, I can't place him. I've seen him and he's wonderful. Love Kenneth Williams. He's fantastic. He really steals the entire movie, in my opinion. He's just so much fun. And even though you could make an argument that Bung is unfortunately the main character, to me, Kenneth Williams just comes on and to steal a joke from Don, by the time he leaves, all the sets are gone and everyone's naked. (laughs) (laughs) It's really fun, though. And I love that it seems to end, not that he's destroyed by his own creation, because the mummy isn't really a creation of his. He just, like, awakened it. But he dies how he has been creating other things. And I did love that. And I love the fact that he falls in this vat and pops back up to say his saying and then falls back in. <laughs> oh, it was so bright. tonight, was that yes. it? Yes. Oh, man. I like the fact that he says it enough that Valeria's like, don't say it. <laughs> <laughs> don't. And he has to do it anyway. While we're on the subject of the ability to raise other things, there is one further Doctor Who oh. connection. Oh. Ooh. And that is Bernard Breslau, who played Socket. He was the lead ice warrior in the first Ice Warriors story. Wow. Wow. Oh, boy. And he was so, so massive that even Sonny Caldinez, who himself is over six feet tall, said that Breslau was the only man that could make him feel small. <laughs> so he was a huge guy. Okay. Wow. So yeah, one other connection. There you wow. go. See, I knew when I was doing my research for this that if I wasn't to find everything, I knew the rest of the crew would. Thank you. <laughs> you mean Anthony would know? Yeah. <laughs> Not the rest of us, but Anthony. To be fair, it was Don who brought up Peter yes, Butterworth, exactly. not me. But I will also say we only ever have about 20 actors in the UK at any one time. Oh, yeah. True. In the past few years, I think five of them were Olivia Coleman. <laughs> so he's yeah. got a point. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go to our ratings then. How do we rate this? Worth a viewing? Or do we say, don't even bother with it? So here's a rating first, and then I'll answer the questions. The rating is going to be at eight men being led by their dicks out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> I would definitely recommend this. Well, okay, I would recommend it. However, if you're looking at it from a Doctor Who perspective, and eh, maybe not. Pertwee is barely in it, and you might right. not recognize some of the side characters. And if you're easily offended, you might not want to watch it. <laughs> However, if you like lowbrow humor that just edges on the side of cringy. It's really fun. I'm going to give it 8 out of 10 Valeria seductions. Ooh. <laughs> and I'm going to agree with Julie. It is a lot of fun. It's not the most offensive carry-on movie. I think they got a bit more offensive as they kind of went on and the later ones just avoid altogether. I'm talking about when they brought it back in 92 and it just was not good. But if you like Hammer, but also enjoy comedy, definitely. If you are just watching it for Pertwee, again, he's got about maybe a minute and a half of screen time, so probably not worth your time. But I just think it's an enjoyable movie regardless. I think his scene is probably somewhere on YouTube, <laughs> if that's all you care about here out there. Much like Anthony and Julia, I would give it eight goth chicks in red velvet out of 10. <laughs> Yes. I don't know. To me, it was just too silly to be offensive. 
because it never came across as being a hurtful kind of offensive. You'd be surprised because every- how easily people can be offended. I know people are professionally offended now. That is their entire job. And it just makes things that actually matter. Mm-hmm. Yes. Have less impact because you're angry about everything. Yes. Anyway. Sorry. <laughs> moving back to whatever the hell it was I was talking about. It's silly. It's not taking itself seriously at all. They're just having fun and drinking, you know, stupid potions that turn them into pseudo werewolves for 10 minutes. And even at the end, which is kind of a weird, almost dark ending, his wife, who is allegedly stuck in a mannequin form, just winks <laughs> at the camera. Yeah. It's not taking itself seriously. It's fun. If you like horror movies, if you like kind of broad, yes, kind of lowbrow comedies, yes, check it out. I would say that I made the mistake of thinking that the parody would be a bit more specific. Instead, I feel like I had the dressings of a horror film with, as everyone has said, a bunch of lowbrow humor. Not to say that it was not a very enjoyable easy, pleasurable viewing experience. It's a very fun, silly movie. Put it on. It's got a lot of action. It moves pretty quick. It's fun. It's silly. And I enjoy that. But I don't know if I enjoyed it as much as everybody else because I think I had a higher expectation of how striking the parody would be of Hammer. But I still think it is worth your time. If you enjoy British films of that time period, you see those familiar actors and it gives you that sense of some sort of touching on the British horror scene back at that time period. So I'm going to give it six Dan Dan's looking up your skirt from underneath the street out of 10. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I believe that about wraps things up. From all of us at Watchers in the Fourth Dimension, we wish you a happy Halloween. Please enjoy the closing music from George C. Music, and why not enjoy your spooky season with a very scary Classic Who episode, like The Demons, The Ark in Space, or the most terrifying of all, The Space Pirates. Good night. Listening to Watchers of the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Julie Filipek, Anthony Williams, and myself, Riley Shrek. This bonus episode, on behalf of the Rubber Bats, was recorded on Wednesday, August 10th, 2022. If this is your first time listening, all of our previous episodes are available through your favorite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D. And you can also email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you are enjoying the show, please subscribe and leave us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. That really does help the show. And remember, next time you are cooking in your kitchen, make sure to exclaim, Frying tonight!